Welcome to the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. My name is Dick Wardrop, and I'm a MedPeds clinician educator, program director, and hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. We are so proud to host our inaugural episode of our podcast, cleverly titled, to give you all that you may expect out of a high-quality, evidence-based medicine grand round, right at your fingertips and right in your ears. Our program is funded by a grant from the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute, but the views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of the Cleveland Clinic. The format of our production is very simple. We host world-class clinical experts in a variety of specialties of internal medicine and put forth important and high-impact clinical questions related to the practice of general medicine, with impact for providers at all levels in medicine, including students, APPs, generalists, and seasoned veterans. Without further ado, I'm proud to introduce Dr. Michael Foe, staff in cardiology and associate professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He also directs the second year cardiology course at CCLCM and is a prized member of the leadership of the Internal Medicine Residency Program. We are also happy to host two additional experts, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee and Dr. Lorenzo Bergeri, both fabulous PGY3 residents at the Cleveland Clinic Internal Medicine Residency Program. And as I can say confidently as their boss, uh, that they are absolutely fantastic. To our honored guests, please take a moment to say hi, tell us about yourselves, and start right in on the questions. Okay, well, I guess I'll start. Uh, hello, everybody listening. Uh, this is Mike Foe. I'm a cardiologist here at the clinic. Uh, general cardiologist, so a bit of a jack of all trades. You know, we describe ourselves as being electricians and plumbers. I would say that I would be a general contractor and that I, you know, I sub things out to the electricians and plumbers, but, you know, generally uh, plan the project, which is the patient. Um, a little bit about me. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, uh, went to medical school in Philadelphia and did all of my medicine cardiology training here in Cleveland, uh, where I've been since 1997. Uh, I have a wife who's in medicine as well. She's a, a gastroenterologist in, in the town and, uh, Really enjoy being here and uh, looking forward to chatting to you guys about stress testing. So I, I guess I'll, I'll go uh, right now. So my name is Lorenzo. I'm one of the PGY3s here at the clinic. A little bit about me very briefly. Uh, I did med school in Italy. That's where I was born and raised. Spent 27 years of my life there. Then I moved to New York to complete a research fellowship in advanced heart failure at the Columbia University. And then I was lucky enough to match for my residency training here at the clinic and still currently enjoying it to the fullest. My wife's also a resident here at the clinic in psych. Um, so it's very nice to share uh, all of our daily lives in medicine together. Uh, fun fact about me, I'm from Milan and my team this year reached the Champions League final. So I had a wonderful time following my club. Uh, it didn't end up well, but uh, I was able to watch the final with my dad here in Cleveland. That was fantastic. Anyway, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. And thanks again, Dr. Wardle, for this opportunity. I guess I can go ahead and quickly introduce myself. Uh, I'm uh, Arjun Chatterjee, like Dr. Wardrop said, a rising third year resident at the clinic. 
uh, like Lorenzo, I did my medical school in India from Calcutta National Medical College, uh, Kolkata, India. And then I spent a year doing research in the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and then was lucky enough to come to the clinic as a resident. I was uh, part of this grant uh, with Dr. Wardrobe. Couple of fun facts about me. Uh, I like to pester Lorenzo that uh, Inter Milan made it to the final but uh, did not cross the line. And we discuss a lot of uh, soccer or football, as we used to call it before coming to the U.S. And uh, and being Indian, chicken tikka masala is my favorite food. If you're ever in Cleveland, hit me up. Uh, I can make some for you. <laughs> All right. So I think we can start with the first questions. And starting from the basics of stress testing, Dr. Fo, would you guide us regarding the current indications for stress testing? Sure. Well, I mean, not surprisingly, um, you know, probably the most common indication for stress testing is going to be uh, for the evaluation of chest pain or something that one considers a an anginal equivalent uh, in outpatients who have a low or moderate uh, predisposing risk for um, coronary artery disease. Uh, that's far and away the the most common reason that uh, you'll see stress tests being ordered, but there are certainly other indications. Uh, in in those few patients that present uh, with an acute coronary syndrome who are at fairly low risk uh, based on their presentation, it, it's also considered uh, appropriate to do non-invasive assessment or stress testing, uh, you know, in lieu of invasive angiography uh, in those select few lower risk patients. Um, you know, we also will consider doing stress testing for indications such as uh, risk stratification and uh, guiding therapy in patients uh, who have known coronary disease with incomplete revascularization uh, or for patients, uh, again, a select few of patients who uh, have marginal functional capacity and uh, underlying concern for coronary disease as part of a preoperative risk assessment. Uh, you know, and those are sort of the main indications, and they all focus on looking for myocardial ischemia. You know, beyond the scope of this talk today, you know, certainly there you know, in the cardiology world, we arrange for um, stress testing for other indications, uh, you know, as well uh, pertaining to you know, sort of heart failure management assessment and um, uh, evaluations for transplant. And we also have a host of um, structural cardiac issues that we will often evaluate with stress echocardiography, including hypertrophic uh, cardiomyopathy, and even patients uh, with aortic stenosis with uh, undeclared uh, functional capacity. Uh, but, you know, the ischemic uh, indications are far and away the most common. That's a great intro, I would say, Dr. Fu. Uh, thank you for that. And that, that actually takes me to my second question, because when I was a medical student, I was thinking in my mind about stress testing, and I was the prototypical type for me was the EKG stress testing. Obviously, today we're going to talk about the different types. Of, what do you think about the classic treadmill EKG stress testing that we're usually thought in med school? Sure. I mean, well, you know, treadmill ECC certainly... Uh, has a role 
uh, in the evaluation of uh, ischemia. In lower risk patients with a normal resting ECG, uh, it's considered appropriate as a screening tool for myocardial ischemia as an evaluation for chest pain. Uh, if you have a completely normal treadmill ECG, um, it has a reasonably good negative predictive value. And so it can be helpful in that sense. Uh, and so it, it's uh, in, in the workup of chest pain or uh, workup for myocardial ischemia, it's also, you know, like I said, it, it has a, a role, albeit a fairly finite one, because a lot of people for whatever reason have either underlying ECG abnormalities or other reasons where, you know, doing um, the ECG portion in conjunction with an imaging modality would be preferable to improve both sensitivity and specificity. Uh, we also use them, um, again, to guide uh, therapy and uh, to, uh, you know, uh, be the, the, the foundation for an exercise prescription. You know, so those are other reasons we use them. But, you know, it is appropriate in, in lower risk patients with a normal resting ECG um, to, to consider a treadmill ECG. That's the kind of thing I think you would also find on a, on a board exam, actually. Because people don't often, you know, we get too caught up in the imaging and, and don't think enough about um, the value of uh, the treadmill ECG. I had a quick follow-up to that, Dr. Fo. Sure. Like, uh, when would you consider like an exercise stress test versus a pharmacologic stress test? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, in general, I would say that exercise is always preferable uh, to, to pharmacotherapy in patients who can exercise. So obviously, the most common reason that we choose uh, something other than exercise as, uh, you know, a surrogate for stress is, is when the patient physically can't exercise. Um, you know, but there are certain examples where uh, pharmacologic agents may be advantageous uh, over um, exercise. For patients who have an underlying left bundle branch block or who are continuously paced, uh, with exercise and increased heart rate, you can get um, an artifact uh, with certain stress imaging modalities, ECHO in particular, that can uh, make interpretation of anterior wall ischemia difficult. And in those patients, uh, combining vasodilator uh, provocation with a, with a nuclear imaging study it probably has the best chance of giving you the best specificity uh, for detection of ischemia overall. So that might be one area where uh, you might choose a pharmacologic agent in a patient, even if they can exercise. Um, you know, and you know, in terms of what modality to choose, you know, a lot of it is very center specific. Uh, here we do a lot of both nuclear imaging and um, echocardiographic imaging. So I think you have very comparable uh, sensitivity and specificity. When we do echocardiography, dobutamine tends to be uh, the agent of choice uh, because it increases heart rate. And you know what this is uh, one of the things that we need to accomplish uh, when we're using um, echocardiography as a uh, you know as our imaging modality. Uh, it's, it's also a good choice in people with underlying obstructive lung disease uh, because unlike some of the vasodilators, it, it doesn't promote bronchospasm. You have to use it in caution in patients who have a history of tachyarrhythmias. 
Um, you know, for nuclear medicine imaging, those people who can't exercise, we we generally use a vasodilator like regadenoson uh, as our um, you know our our provocative agent of choice. You know, we don't talk a lot about um, MRI. I mean, MRI is also an imaging modality that can be used for uh, the evaluation of chest pain. And some centers do do it, often with dobutamine. Uh, the issue has a lot to do with cost, and it's a somewhat cumbersome procedure to do. And, and there are a lot of patients that have difficulty with with claustrophobia and staying in the scanner long enough. So it, it's not something, at least here, that we um, do with any sort of regularity, um, except in select uh, situations. But in other centers, you might find that stress MRI is is more commonly done. Thank you, Dr. Fo, for going over the different strength, stress imaging modalities. That's actually very helpful because as a medical student, I find I found very daunting to kind of pick up between all of the different options we have nowadays, especially with within this year of an increasing emphasis on stress imaging over EKG stress tests. Uh, before we jump into our clinical case, uh, I wanted to ask you about the cardiopulmonary exercise stress testing, because that's another maybe esoteric version of the stress testing that we normally don't talk about very often. So I wanted to hear your thoughts. Sure. I mean, well, for, for those that aren't familiar with it, I mean, cardiopulmonary exercise testing allows us to measure VO2 max. Uh, so it's, you know, we actually measure oxygen uptake. Uh, as the patient is exercising. So it's a little different than the standard uh, treadmill ECG or uh, treadmill portion of the stress test. Uh, we use it uh, to evaluate symptoms just like we would any other stress test. You know, more likely that symptom is going to be dyspnea. And you're going to consider doing it in a patient that might have risk factors uh, that would predispose them to both cardiovascular and pulmonary causes or even deconditioning, you know, depending on uh, their, uh, um, the amount of effort that they put in, uh, you can look at the data from a cardiopulmonary exercise test and fairly reliably uh, get a sense of uh, to what extent the patient's symptomology might uh, result from a pulmonary cause versus a cardiovascular cause or, or simply deconditioning. So, you know, when you have that sort of differential, uh, a cardiopulmonary exercise test is a, is a good choice. Uh, we use it very frequently in, in, in heart failure patients and in patients uh, pre and post transplant uh, to evaluate candidacy for transplantation, you know, and also uh, to assess the, um, the adequacy of our, our therapy. Uh, so we often will track VO2 max in, in patients uh, with heart failure. Uh, you know, pre and post uh, treatment with guideline directed medical therapy or device therapy. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a role that's a little bit more specific within cardiology uh, for exercise, uh, for a cardiopulmonary exercise testing as well. Uh, we also will use it, uh, you know, to evaluate patients with pulmonary hypertension. Uh, also for similar reasons to guide the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the benefits of therapy to, to make sure that you know, if you have uh, on a patient on a pulmonary vasodilator that you know that their uh, VO2 max is uh, improving as you'd expect. That's extremely helpful, Doctor Fo. Uh, I think now we 
have the perfect basics uh, laid down to start talking about our case. Uh, so I'm going to ahead and present it. Uh, we have a 69-year-old uh, lady presenting to our outpatient clinic. She is complaining of uh, chest burning, shortness of breath, and exertional intolerance for the last six months, and these symptoms have been slowly progressing over time. She has a past medical history of hypertension, uh, diabetes, fairly controlled with an A1C of 7.2%, obesity, and osteoarthritis got her right knee uh, replaced recently. Um, when, upon further reviewing of her symptoms, she's complaining of exertional symptoms after one flight upstairs or when carrying her grocery bags uh, or when doing the laundry. Occasionally, she would have this chest burning and shortness of breath also when showering or when getting dressed, but never at rest. She otherwise denies any orthopnea, dizziness, syncope, or paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. From a non-cardiac review of system, she only endorses mild osteoarthritis knee pain. Uh, she's a snorer. Apparently, the husband is reporting that she occasionally um, experiences apneic episodes, and she naps a lot during the day. Um, from a social history perspective, she's married. She's currently retired. She was never a smoker, and she only drinks wine two, two three times a week. From a family history perspective, her father died at the age of 52 because of MI. On our physical exam, her vitals are normal. She does not have a JVD. She has regular rate and rhythm, no murmur. Lungs are clear to auscultation, and she does not have any lower extremity bleeding edema. Her EKG is showing nonspecific intraventricular conduction delay with some abnormal ST changes. So I will now turn it over to you, Dr. Fall. What would be your rationale when thinking about stress testing this patient? And if so, what would you pick between exercise versus pharmacologic? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, so you presented her very well. And, you know, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, uh, does she have symptoms, you know, that you believe could be an angel equivalent? And, you know, you have to factor in, you know, uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes and, and women, um, these are, you know, two patient populations where uh, chest discomfort from angina can be a little less than typical. Uh, but even so, I mean, her, her description of her chest discomfort as burning certainly fits. Um, she also has an element of dyspnea, uh, and this also could be uh, an anginal equivalent and certainly has a, a robust underlying risk or uh, the presence of ischemic heart disease. So I, I would say, you know, with regards to the question, should she have a stress test? I would say yes, um, because I think that there's a reasonable pretest likelihood that she has underlying um, coronary disease. Uh, and then in terms of uh, what, uh, how should we stress her? I think if she can walk, if she can climb a flight of stairs and she can carry a bag of groceries up a flight of stairs, and she feels comfortable ambulating on a treadmill or or with a bicycle because we do sometimes do that. Um, I, I think that exercise would certainly be the most appropriate um, uh, stress uh, uh, in, in modality in terms of that versus a pharmacologic test. Uh, now, with regards to imaging or not, you know, based on your description of her baseline ECG, 
uh, I think that it's very likely it would be uninterpretable as a standalone study. And also her risk is is probably more moderate in terms of uh, underlying pretest probability. Uh, so in order to improve our sensitivity and specificity, you know, I think doing an imaging modality um, in concert with exercise uh, ECG would be appropriate. Now, in, in terms of uh, deciding, um, you know, you know which modality, uh, you know, we can we can kind of discuss that. Um, you know, in you know her. So, I mean, does that answer your question for you? If that, is there anything else that you want me to elaborate on? No, I I think that does answer my question. If you can also comment on on the data we have on sensitivity and specificity we have for different stress modalities. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, you know, so if you just simply look at your um your your exercise ECG, um its ability to detect um, you know, obstructive coronary disease and these are mostly um, you know, based on angiographic uh narrowings of at least 70% or so. Um you know, you're looking at a sensitivity of, you know, 50 to 60% uh, with a specificity of 70 to 90% for ECG alone. Uh, when you add an imaging modality, you tend to get comparable um, sensitivities and specificities. So whether you're talking about echocardiography, uh, SPECT, um, PET, uh, you know, you're 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 looking more at sensitivities that are in the you know 75 to 90 percent range, and then the specificity can vary. Um, you know, probably stress echo has a little bit more um, specificity uh, than stress uh, spect. Um, you know, PET though has uh, you know is is another. Uh, nuclear imaging modality that has a bit more uh, specificity uh, than PET. So that's also something to consider. Um, and, and so they're, they're comparable. You know, I think that the choice depends a lot on availability. It depends on, again, institutional experience. Um, you know, for example, if, you know, if you're going to use SPECT, you know, you want to make sure that, you, you know, your lab does attenuation correction uh, with CT uh, this is something that helps improve the the specificity uh, pretty immensely uh, by ruling out like diaphragmatic and breast attenuation, um, and so you know it kind of gives you a little bit more confidence uh, in your results. Uh, so I think that you know in in choosing a, a modality for her. You know, and this is more personal preference. You know, I, I like to think a little bit beyond just myocardial ischemia as a potential explanation for her symptoms. I mean, you know, she's got a lot of risk factors for sleep apnea um, and she's obese. Uh, so, you know, if she's got any kind of structural heart disease or any element of pulmonary hypertension, which might explain a portion of her dyspnea, you know, then, you, you, you know, you would probably favor an echocardiogram as your imaging modality. Because uh, you can actually estimate the uh, pulmonary artery pressures from that, and also screen for you know valvular dysfunction in addition to just ischemia. So in, in in you know my 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 general choice in patients where dyspnea is a big portion, 
and there could be non-cardiac or structural cardiac explanations for it. I, I tend to default to echo uh, because it gives you that extra information. I had a follow-up question, Dr. Faw. What about yeah. a coronary artery CTA? Like, is that something which you would consider for this particular patient? For this particular patient, I probably would go with a dynamic study like a stress test over a CTA, largely due to her age. Um, she's 68 years old. And the concern that you have in patients above the age of 65 with coronary CTA is that you know, a sizable percentage of the population will have some degree of uh, coronary calcium, not necessarily within the lumen of the coronary, but in the artery bed. And even a little bit of calcium can create a blooming artifact on imaging that can really obscure the ability to assess the vessel wall and, and accurately, um, you know, assess for stenosis. So although CTA in the right patient has you know, very good sensitivity um, and, and reasonable specificity as well. You know, here, you know, we tend to shy away from it in patients who are over the age of 65, just because the likelihood of getting a non-diagnostic study is a bit higher. You know, one good cheat that you can do, and I often do this, um, you know, as I'm evaluating patients with chest pain complaints is is you can look and see if they've ever had a non-contrast CT at any point in the recent past and, and just simply look and see if there's coronary calcium. If there's not a single pixel of coronary calcium, then you, know, you, you could consider a CTA. But I think with her and these exertional symptoms and dyspnea being a big part of it, there's other things you probably want to learn about her heart and her lungs um, that you would be better off using a more dynamic study um, uh, to ascertain. Well, that's a great overview of all of the different imaging modalities we have. Um, what I would say now that we discuss those, what would be high-risk findings on the stress testing, Dr. Foe? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, there's lots of them. Um, you know, just starting with uh, the patient uh, herself, you know, I think very low functional capacity for age uh, would be considered a high-risk finding, particularly if that's associated with symptoms. So if she's on the treadmill for two minutes and she's already having significant chest discomfort, uh, particularly, particularly if that is associated with um, ECG changes, um, you know, that would be uh, one red flag. Uh, if the hype, if the blood pressure uh, does not augment appropriately with exercise, or you know, in, in extreme cases, if at peak exercise the blood pressure goes down, uh, particularly in the setting of symptoms, that would be also be considered a high risk finding because the implications there are that she's exercising and something is happening to the point where you know, she's unable to maintain cardiac output normally. Um, and so you would be thinking about like left main or multivessel disease. So simply looking at um, her exercise performance and her blood pressure response to exercise uh, can give you some of those high risk features. I mean, on the ECG, of course, um, striking ST segment changes, um, ST elevation is always a major concern if a patient develops chest discomfort and ST segment elevation during exercise, and obviously we would call that high risk and probably terminate the study um, and um, try to expedite an angiogram uh, for that patient. 
Uh, similarly, you know, when you have profound ST depression, so you're talking, you know, three, four millimeters uh, across many leads of horizontal ST depression, especially if there's uh, concurrent um, ST elevation and AVR, you know, that's another finding that sort of hints at a, a high uh, degree of uh, LB mass uh, being ischemic. Uh, so those, those would be ECG things. Or, you know, if patients are having um, significant runs of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, particularly if it's polymorphic and in the setting of symptoms, those would be sort of ECG features that you would consider high risk. And then with imaging, you know, I think regardless of the modality, if you see the uh, ventricular function decrease in the setting of exercise uh, rather than increase, um, you know, that would be a, um, a high risk feature. And often you'll see dilatation of the ventricle with exercise. So those would be um, things that we would consider um, as, uh, as high risk features. It, or if you see wall motion abnormalities of a per fairly profound nature, you know, more than five um, left ventricular segments uh, that become ischemic with exercise, particularly if that's in the anterior distribution or LAD distribution, uh, you know, you would consider those high-risk features, meaning that you would probably favor um, defining her coronary anatomy um, as you appropriately medical treat, medically treat, uh, excuse me, versus, you know, uh, you know, treating if, if her symptoms are stable, treating medically, and then reassessing. Uh, so those those I think would be the big things that would buy somebody a trip to the catheterization lab on the sooner side. So you you already briefly alluded to my actual follow up question: how we should respond to abnormal stress testing. Obviously, you just said that if you have high risk features, you should probably go directly to an angiogram. But in general, how would you normally react to an abnormal stress testing? Sure. So I think to a degree, it depends on the severity of the patient's symptoms and how abnormal. Like, let's say you have a patient with, you know, class two stable angina. So, you know, like this lady who gets chest burning, if she climbs a flight of stairs or two or is carrying groceries, but it's very stable and predictable. Um and she uh, rests and it goes away. It's not waking her from sleep. It's not happening during ADLs and it's not escalating. Um, then I think in that setting, if you, if you were to have some suggestion of myocardial ischemia, let's say um, the inferior wall looks a little hypokinetic or a little underperfused on, um, on spec imaging or something like that. Uh, but she's got preserved ejection fraction, no high-risk findings, even though she does have ischemia, uh, and you're convinced that she probably does have some degree of coronary disease in that in that region, it would be appropriate to start her on um, both uh, appropriate secondary preventive therapy with uh, with an aspirin and an appropriate dose of a, of a statin, and also on antianginal therapy, and then reassess her symptoms. Uh, you know, there are patients who uh, don't have high risk features, but do have angina with um, evidence of, uh, you know, sort of lower risk perfusion abnormalities that can ga gain symptom control uh, with medications alone. And if you do that and you have them on appropriate preventive medical therapy, then you're doing the right thing. And that, you know, that's uh, and that's very guidelines based. So, you know, not every abnormal stress test should lead ultimately to a catheterization uh, 
and search for something to stent or bypass. You know, in lower risk patients who have abnormal results but have stable symptoms, I think it's perfectly appropriate to start with medical therapy. And and you do medical therapy regardless, but I don't think you would necessarily have to rush into, um, you know, defining coronary anatomy in that setting. That's a very great overview, Ashford. That's very helpful, I think. Um, answers a lot of the questions I had as a student and as a junior resident. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot show pictures yet of our patients, but just going back to our case, she ultimately ended up having a stress echo like Dr. Fo was advocating for. And the stress echo revealed LV dilatation and reduced EF with exercise. And we just talked about how these are high-risk features. Uh, she ended up getting a coronary angiogram, which revealed three-vessel coronary artery disease, and she received cabbage in conjunction with appropriate medical therapy. Uh, and a question, Dr. Fo, uh, how do you normally follow up in this scenario? You treated the patient, she got cabbage, she's on appropriate medical therapy. How do you set the follow-up from there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like everything in medicine, you know, 90% of what you ultimately act on is going to be based on history and exam. Um, you know, there's we have this sort of generic rule that if somebody undergoes surgical revascularization and there's no immediate complications, that they they almost get a pass uh, from a, an ischemia point of view for, for five years. Um, you know, that's not anything scientific, but uh, it's very unlikely in, in that period of time that you would see any issues with graft failure or anything like that. So, you know, I would get into that usually if the patients are doing well, if they're asymptomatic post-surgery on the right medical therapy. It's very important that these patients get referred for um, phase two cardiac exercise once they've recovered from the surgery. That that really expedites their recovery and it, it optimizes their uh, functional capacity quite a bit. And for the, you know these patients who are stable, I often meet with them once a year. Um, but the you know the bulk of what we do during that um, uh, visit is bread and butter doctoring rather than imaging or things like that. I you know if there's if the patient's functioning at a high level um, without symptoms, uh, you know I don't routinely stress patients, um, you know, in this scenario, uh, you know, it's best always to let the patient's, uh, story guide you, uh, regarding when you would think it might be appropriate to, to reinterrogate, um, you know, for, uh, myocardial ischemia, but that should really be based on their symptomatology. Are there cardiologists that um, you know, we'll do uh, stress testing at fixed intervals in any patient that has ischemic heart disease. There are. And, you know, and there are both guideline-directed uh, resources and, and what we call appropriate use criteria, which differ a little bit. So it's not necessarily unjustifiable. Uh, but, you know, I try to, um, you know, be judicious in my use of, uh, like, subsequent screening um, stress imaging or testing uh, based on on clinical need. And, and, you know, and you have to think outside the box, even something as subtle as, you know, a drop in exercise tolerance without clear symptoms, you know, might be enough, uh, you know, to compel me to 
um, you know, to exercise the patient again and make certain that, you know, that, that, that we're not overlooking something uh, ischemic. Uh, but, you know, there's actually, you know, it's actually considered, uh, you know, sort of a class three or, or, or unindicated to do annual uh, stress testing on patients post revascularization. Um, so, you know, a lot of us, you know, just base it on, on clinical necessity. Yeah, that's a great reminder that we, we should always listen to the patients first, uh, before just ordering tests. Um, it's always good to remember that. Uh, I think I have maybe the time for maybe one or two qu quick questions, uh, before we, uh, close this up. So obviously we had a case with a very abnormal stress imaging finding. But how would you react to a case with a normal stress imaging and a diagnostically abnormal EKG finding? Uh, yeah, that's, you know, and, and we do encounter that. Um, you know, the reason that we add the imaging is because, uh, you know, the sensitivity and specificity is a bit less with uh, um, ECG alone. I, I think, again, uh, I would... I would start by referring to the patient. I would look at the patient's exercise performance and and for the presence or absence of symptoms. You know, if you had a patient with um, completely normal imaging, but they had chest discomfort uh, on the treadmill with um, significant ST changes, and there's different ways that we can sort of semi-quantitatively assess that, you know, by using, for example, the Duke treadmill score. So if they had a high-risk a Duke treadmill score, uh, even in the presence of, of normal imaging, yeah, I might be inclined to uh, look for coronary stenosis in a patient like that. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a patient who's completely asymptomatic and exercises to a high level um, and the imaging is pristine and the only thing you notice are the ST changes, you know, then I, I think it's appropriate to sort of base your decision on the bulk of the evidence, which would be what the patient's uh, symptomatology, exercise tolerance, and imaging are telling you. And if you have the one piece of information that doesn't quite fit, which is the ECG um, abnormalities, which, like I said, can also occur um, for reasons other than myocardial ischemia, then I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable saying that that's a negative test. You know, but I would also make sure that the patient was aware that... Um, you know, that the ECG portion was abnormal, um, just so that it's common knowledge to that individual if they get another stress test in the future someplace else, that um, that the patient knows that information. Because that would, you know, make me disinclined to ever consider doing like a treadmill um, ECG only uh, in a patient like that. So, you know, in just in quick summary, so symptoms, exercise, performance, um, those should be the things that would allow you to um, sort of override the normal imaging, you know, if there was something concerning there. And really my last question, also to satisfy my my curiosity, uh, you already talked about the CCTA, so I think we can skip that. But what do you think about the coronary artery calcium scoring that has been highly debated? Uh, there has been a recent review on Jack talking a lot about the calcium density concept too. So how do you incorporate it into your practice? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I use coronary calcium scoring for what it was initially intended to do, which is to help 
further stratify risk in patients who, you know, are maybe borderline in terms of, you know, using something like the ASCVD risk calculator. Uh, and, and maybe you have a patient who's a little undecided about whether they would want to initiate statin therapy uh, or, or something of that nature. So if you look at other things that we do in cardiology aside from the basics, uh, which is using clinical um, prediction modeling like the ASCVD risk calculator um, and, and uh, you know, fasting lipid information, uh, you know, other things that can help stratify that are, that are considered vetted or appropriate would be a coronary calcium score. And scores above 300 are considered to be significant enough to maybe sway you a little bit toward being more aggressive, like, uh, you know, higher intensity versus lower intensity statin dosing. You know, other things that we do is check uh, CRP levels um, and even carotid intimate media thickness, which hardly anybody ever orders, but it has been studied, you know, as a risk uh, stratification adjunct, and it, it is is perfectly appropriate to do. Uh, so I think that, you know, I use it mostly for what it's intended to do, which is to allow you to have a, you know, shared decision-making conversation with the patient about things like, should we introduce a statin at a higher dose or not? The other thing that comes up, and it's very relevant in light of recent data, is the is the role of aspirin. You know, as you know, that there are, um, you know, recently uh, there's pretty credible uh, large population randomized data that in primary prevention patients, um, low-dose aspirin uh, is uh, dissuaded uh, because it, although they do prevent ischemic events, um, when you look at... Um, you know, a large number of patients, you're, you're, you're statistically more likely to cause a significant bleed, particularly gastrointestinal bleeding, uh, by prescribing low-dose aspirin to patients who are lower risk, i.e. that they've never had a, an indexed cardiac event. But this would be one situation where I would also have a conversation with the patient if they had a high calcium score about individualized risk. And so you can actually do your best to, in that particular individual, assess their risk for bleeding with something like a low dose. I mean, are they a heavy alcohol user? Do they have a history of, of prior GI bleeding? Uh, are they on an anticoagulant? You know, and if you have a, a patient that doesn't have high risk for bleeding from low dose aspirin and they have a pretty significant calcium score, that is one scenario where I might have a conversation with them about, in your case as an individual, I think that the benefit probably outweighs the risk and would consider adding aspirin. Um, you know, I see people using this to diagnose coronary disease. I see people using this as a justification to do an angiogram. Um, I think that that's a bit over the top in an asymptomatic person. There's not really evidence to support doing that. Uh, if you have somebody with marginal functional capacity and you're not sure um, about whether they push themselves enough to get angina and they do have uh, a high calcium score in that setting, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to consider a functional study like, you know, a stress test, uh, you know, to, you know, just to screen, uh, especially if, if a lot of their calcium, you know, is in the left main LAD distribution, um, you know, but, you know, I, I, you know, I, I try my best to explain the purpose of the of the study to the patient so that they know, 
you know, that this isn't um, an automatic death sentence. But I think that a lot of patients and even some physicians tend to overreact to high calcium scores. Well, I guess this leads us to the end of the first episode of the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. This was amazingly informative, and I feel much more equipped to counsel patients and order the appropriate testing around cardiac stress imaging based on this expert discussion. Until next time, please enjoy this and future podcasts during your next Medicine Grand Rounders.